listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Kelowna. For more information about our church, please visit harvestkelowna.ca. And the text that we're looking at this morning uh, is from chapter 2, the last two verses in chapter 2, verses 28 to 3, verse 3. And I'm going to read those this morning. So uh, feel free to open your Bibles and read along with me. John writes, the Apostle John writes, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure That everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we shall be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Sin has always been a big problem. And it was no different during the time the New Testament was written. Since the very reason, sin is the very reason that the Apostle John is writing this letter. Sin has wreaked havoc in the church. Causing divisions and creating confusion, doubt, and insecurity. Sin deceives And it distorts and perverts, secretly fostering legalism, pride and self-righteousness, while at the same time encouraging easy believism on the other side. Sin is the reason the world is messed up, and sin is also the reason the church is messed up. This morning, as we come to 1 John 2, 28 to 3, verse 3, there's a context. People have left the church. We, we read that in chapter 2, verse 19. And the church is reeling from the effects. But it's not just their leaving that's affected the church. The things that they have said and taught have left a mark. And we can infer from what John has written just by reading Uh, what's going on behind the text, we can infer that people were denying that, that that they'd ever sinned. They were saying that they had never sinned, making claims that they had never sinned. Some denied that they needed to even repent of their sins. And the result was that the church was confused about the question, what is a Christian? Well, this is a very relevant issue today. And I will go out on a limb and say that for the most part, uh, our churches are not impacting our society. And I want to be careful um, because there's many ways that we could measure the impact of our churches. But just from a 40,000 foot level, it's easy to see several areas where the country has shifted morally including no-fault divorce and same-sex marriage, legalization of assisted suicide and the legalization of marijuana. Now, I realize that this does not necessarily mean that the church has failed, but it is true that all of these shifts have happened while the church is supposed to be salt and light in the world. Now, there are other factors as well. The prevalence of the internet and its sidekick, pornography. Our civilizations 
I don't want to just say Canada or even, the, even North America, but our whole Western civilization's infatuation with stuff, also known as consumerism. Our never-ending need for entertainment. I would argue that in all these areas, not only is the church having very little impact, the church rather looks a lot like the society. So what should be done? What, what should we do? Let, let, me, let me start by asking a question. Should a Christian stand out in society? Now, that's meant to be a rhetorical question. We all know that Jesus stood out in his society. And we know what they did to him. Where am I, where am I going with all of this? Well, throughout history, Sin has been a huge problem in the church. And the Apostle John is writing to his people about sin and the effect of sin in the church. And John's solution here in these verses is to deepen their doctrine. That's what he's doing. And in our churches, many people view doctrine as the problem. It's too much. We have too much of it. They would say that doctrine divides and what we need is to be a more loving church. The world just needs to see the love of God on display in the church. They would say we need to be more accepting and more tolerant, less divisive and less bigoted. And you know what? The Apostle John would actually agree with that maybe with some caveats, but his description of the Christian life can be summed up by the, by the two great commandments, love God and love your neighbor. That's what John is trying to communicate in, this, in his, his letter to these people. But the way that he gets there is not by jettisoning doctrine. It's not by throwing doctrine away, but by digging deep into the truths of the scriptures and laboring to make the church theologically savvy and equip them with a robust understanding of how both faith and practice come together in the life of a Christian and in the church. The answer for a, a church struggling with sin or for a church that is weak and anemic and in love with the world and in danger of having her lamp snuffed out is doctrine. It's deep, rich, vital, biblical, and life-giving doctrine. More than anything, we need to know what is a Christian and we need to know what the Bible says about this because the church is in a state of confusion about what a believer is. And because we need confidence and comfort as we think about facing the coming judgment. Jesus is going to come again and he will judge the living and the dead. And because we need spines of steel to live the lives that please God in a, in a crooked and depraved generation. This is why we need doctrine. This is why we need to know what a Christian is. And this is the first thing that John shows us in this passage. He tells us who a Christian is. And we read in, I'm just going to read uh, chapter 2, 28 and 29. And now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Now, I, I want to take just a, a brief moment as an aside here and say or ask you, have you, have you as you've been reading 1 John, noticed a couple of words that keep coming up over and over and over again. Well, there's a few of them, but two of them that I want to focus on, abide, which occurs 18 times, and know, which occurs 34 times in this letter, they form a framework or a foundation 
for helping us to understand this letter. And you can see, I've, I've just taken one page here, and I've highlighted all of those, all of the, the times that those words occur. They, they occur a lot, and they help us understand what John is saying. One helpful way to read your Bible is to notice these repeated words that an author uses. And sometimes you will see patterns emerge. And if you do that with these two words, not only will you see how regularly they occur, but as you read, you'll begin to notice that John uses each one of these words in unique ways. When John uses the word no, he's, he's usually or, or very often trying to teach doctrine. He wants to tell us what we need to know or what we need to believe. And when he uses the word abide, he is after what we do. He's trying to encourage us to live a certain way. He's trying to encourage our practices or actions. And as John writes this epistle to address the issue of sin, he's going to do so in two ways. First, by addressing their beliefs and teaching doctrine. And second, by encouraging them towards action. The Apostle John wants knowledge to inform their actions, and then their actions in turn validate or deny whether they are abiding in God. Each one reinforces the other. So that's just a, a bit of an aside. As, as I'm working through a text, those are things that I'm looking for. So sort of getting back to what we we're talking about, the, the first thing again that we that we come to in this text is that Jesus or that John wants to show us who is a Christian. Now, John has a lot of different reasons for writing this epistle, and, and he actually says that several times. I write this to you so that we, we see that phrase occur three or four times in John's letter. But one of the challenges that these Christians face is discouragement over people who have left the church. And the first thing that he tells them uh, in, in the letter is that these Christians can have fellowship with the Father and the Son. Going all the way back to chapter 1, verse 3, John writes, what we have seen and heard and he's talking about Jesus here, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and the Son. This fellowship that John's talking about is possible uh, through three activities. First, it's possible through the work of Christ on the cross. And we read about that in chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. Christ's death on the cross accomplishes our salvation by forgiving us our sins and by propitiating, that big word that Melvin talked about several weeks ago, by satisfying God's wrath against sin. That's the first way that we can have fellowship with God. Secondly, it happens through the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And we read that in in the previous verse, back in verse 27, where, where John writes, but the anointing, and he's talking about the Holy Spirit here, the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. So that, that's the second way that we get fellowship with God. God puts his spirit in us. We have fellowship with God through his spirit. And the third way that, we, that this that we get this fellowship, or really this fellowship is maintained, is by practicing righteousness. And we see this in the verses that we're looking at. Verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, then you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. You can be sure. You can be sure. John wants... His people to know that they can be sure that if they are practicing righteousness, they're born of him. That's, that's encouraging. That should encourage your soul. That's what John wants for his audience, for them to know that despite all of these people walking out, leaving the faith, they can be sure that they're born of God 
if they're practicing righteousness. That is, those are three ways that we know that we have fellowship with God. So I just want to focus on this phrase, practice righteousness, that we see in verse 29. It's new. It hasn't shown up. We haven't seen that word used in this way before in, in, in John's epistle. But the idea is not new. John has described this practice of righteousness in chapters 1 and 2. And if you remember some of the things that he said, you'll, you'll, you'll see it right away. He tells us in chapter 1 that we're to walk in the light. He tells us in chapter 2, verse 3, that we're to keep his commandments. He tells us in chapter 2, verse 6, that we're to walk like Jesus. He tells us in chapter 2, verse 10, that we're to love the brothers. He tells us in chapter 2, verse 15, that we're not to love the world. Practicing righteousness in every one of these examples... Like, that is what practicing righteousness is. But practicing righteousness is the way that we have fellowship with God. It is the way that we maintain. Let me, let me say that again. We maintain our relationship. We maintain our fellowship with God by practicing these things. Every time you see the word abide in 1 John, John is talking about practicing righteousness in order to maintain your relationship with him or in order to maintain your fellowship with him, with God. So there's many ways that I could illustrate this practicing of righteousness. I don't know that I, I can really improve on John here, but I was thinking, you know, I could talk about marriage and what it takes to maintain a, a healthy marriage, a healthy relationship. But, you know, and I have a lot of experience with that. I've been married, you know, for quite a few years and, uh, and I, I actually have known my wife this year, more years than I haven't known her. So, so I, I think I could, I could use that as an example, but I've also milked cows for a long time. And I can tell you a little bit about what it takes to maintain a healthy cow. So if you wanted to get milk from a cow for, you know, because you, know, you didn't have anything better to do, uh, you, you'd need to do a number of things. First, you'd need to get that cow, and then you'd need to feed that cow. Now, you'd have to make sure that you bought good quality feed. And so you'd have to source forage, good forage and grains, and make sure that you fed enough hay and not too much grain. And then if that cow has never had a baby calf, then you're going to have to breed that cow in order to get any milk from that cow so that she can begin to lactate. And then uh, if you, you know, if you get that far and your cow is still alive, you're going to have to milk that cow for about 300 days and keep a close eye all the time, maintaining good udder health and foot health and overall health and watching for weight gain and loss. And, and if you're not fed up milking that cow after 300 days and you want to do it again next year, you're going to have to think about breeding her again and then drying her off and... And then when she calves again, you get to start the whole process all over again. And practicing righteousness is just like that. It's all the little things that you do that go into keeping that relationship with God alive and healthy. So by the time we get to chapter 2, verse 28, where we're at this morning, we are at a very pivotal point in the text. John is making a maneuver in a, in a slightly different direction. John has taught doctrine or truth to these Christians, and he's called them to abide in God by putting this doctrine into practice. But there's still a few niggling issues. People have left the church. And on their way out of the church, they have said 
that you can, you can commit sin and still be a Christian. And John addresses this departure and their teaching in two ways. First, right off the bat in chapter, or in verse 28, he tells Christians to abide in God so that they will be confident when Jesus returns at his judgment. And John is simply repeating here when he says abide and reinforcing the very things that he taught earlier, that in order for a Christian to maintain their relationship with God, they must abide in him. And that means practicing righteousness. And this is what we've just talked about. But what I want you to do is to make sure that you see the relevance of this information. Why is, why is John saying this? Why is it important? And John is saying in 228 to these Christians that the people who left were not really Christians. Because they failed to abide or remain in God. They failed to maintain that relationship by practicing righteousness. Only people who abide in God will have confidence on the day of judgment. That's the logic of this verse. And that is what a Christian is. The second thing that John says in, in verse 29 is that if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Again, I said this is new information. We hadn't seen it before now. But when John says, if you know that he is righteous, he is talking about something very specific. We've, I've just shown you that practicing righteousness is all of these things that we do. Well, the same is true for Jesus Christ. And what did Christ do? What is the work of Christ? What are the actions of Christ? Well, he went to the cross to propitiate or to satisfy God's wrath against our sin. In other words, what John is telling these Christians is, I want you to know that work that Jesus did on the cross brings you into fellowship with God, all right? It makes you right. It gives you, it puts you in the right with God. But, or maybe I should say, and, it also makes you a child of God. Now, think about that for the moment, for a moment. The work that Jesus did on the cross has made you a child of God. Jesus is cross work does two things. First, his righteousness gives you a clean record before God. And second, his righteousness makes you alive to God internally. It does a work on the outside, giving you a clean record, and it does a work on the inside, making you alive to God. So, so what? What, what does that do? What, what, is, what does it mean? Well, at the very least, this ought to encourage you. It should comfort you. It really should. John meant, remember the context, John meant for these doctrines to bring joy to Christians as they understood that to be a Christian is to be a child of God who lives to please his father. Right? This is giving them comfort. It's giving the people the audience, the Christians that John is writing to comfort, to know that they are God's children. Don't get tired of this doctrine. Learn to delight in it. And it will fuel your desire to live a life that pleases God. So the first thing that we can say is that a Christian is a child of God who abides in God by practicing righteousness. And so he or she is safe 
from God's judgment when Jesus returns. Let, let, me, let me say that again. This is what a Christian is, according to what we've seen in this verse. A Christian is a child of God who abides in God by practicing righteousness and is safe from God's judgment when Jesus returns. But there's, there's more. We're not done yet. We also receive something as, as Christians. In the previous verse, uh, we dealt with the doctrine of regeneration. That's what that whole thing is called. Where God makes us his children. And now in 3 verse 1, the apostle introduces two more new ideas. Uh, unfortunately, we will only have time to deal with one of these, the first of these. Uh, God's love for his children and how that love for his children is intimately connected to his child and to being a Christian. That's, that's what we're going to look at in uh, 3 verse 1. Now, I know that not everyone here um, has probably experienced healthy relationships between parents or between children. So I want to say up front that for some of you or for those of you who are in that situation, this, this, is, this could be difficult to hear. You might not be able to relate to this verse, to a father who so loved his children that he made them or so loved that he made us his children. You might not have an experience there of that in your life. And to you, I pray that this verse might become one of hope for you. But when the Apostle John writes, uh, see what kind of love, many translations have used alternate phrases like see how great a love or see what love. And all of these are legitimate readings. They're all right readings of the text. But what John is trying to communicate here is that there is, is something about the very nature of God. Really of God's love. And many of us have had loving relationships with children and think that maybe that we can relate to what God is feeling for his children, the affection that he has for his children, because we feel the, the like similar affections for our children. But our experience is not God's experience. There may be a few parents here who have had difficult relationships with children. Maybe a child has walked out on them or perhaps even disowned them. And if these parents still feel a great affection for their children, we might think that they understand what John is saying here because that's sort of what we were like. We were, God loved us while we were his enemies, while we were hard to love. And we might think that those people who have had difficult relationships with children would understand this a little more. But they would be wrong as well. What God has actually done is to call those who murdered his own son, his children. In fact, he goes one step further. It's really in order to call us his children, God had to sacrifice his own son to save the very people who nailed his son to a cross. And make no mistake about it, if you have sinned, you were part, you were guilty in nailing Jesus to the cross, even though you didn't drive the nails in his hands. God himself planned this. He purposed that his son would die to purchase our redemption. So when John writes, see what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called the children of God, and so we are, he is trying to communicate something to us that none of us can relate to. John, John is awestruck by what, he, what, by what he knows, 
by this doctrine, by this theology, by this truth. And so should we. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus is having a meal with a Pharisee named Simon. And at the same time, there's a woman who's come by and she's broken an expensive jar of perfume and she's poured it over his feet and she is weeping. And as she weeps, she is wiping the tears and the perfume from his feet and preparing him for his burial. And while it's going on, Jesus tells Simon a story about two debtors, one who owed this great sum of money and another who owed a small sum of money. And both were forgiven by the master. And Jesus applies this parable to Simon's life. And he asks Simon the question, who, um, who loves more? And Simon rightly answers, the one who was forgiven more. And Jesus asks him or tells him that from the moment that he walked into that household, this woman has not stopped caring for him while Simon hasn't been a good host, hasn't looked after his needs, hasn't given many hasn't washed his feet, hasn't uh, just cared for him. And Jesus wants Simon, he wants him to realize that the, the love that this woman has is a response to how much she has, she has been forgiven. This woman was forgiven a great debt and her response is brokenness before her Lord. And we need to ask ourselves, what is our response? This isn't just for Simon. The gospel writers, Luke records that story for you and me. We need that story. Have you experienced that kind of love? Are you willing to give up your dignity Sell everything you have and fall at your Savior's feet, rejoicing over what he has done for you. Every Christian knows this love. Every single Christian knows this love. Maybe not as deeply as we can. Maybe we will grow in our understanding of it, but every Christian has experienced this kind of love. They know what it is to be loved by a savior like that. And it is this love that fuels our power to obey God. It fuels our obedience. Every Christian has received this love. And it is the second mark of being a Christian in this text. And it fuels our hope that one day we will see Jesus. There is there's one other point, and I cut it out today. I cut it out because I just don't have enough time to deal with it. It's in chapter, it's in verse two of chapter three, where John writes, Beloved, we are God's children now. Right? John is he's concerned about who we are. And he, and he tells us we're the children of God. He's concerned about what we're going to receive. And he tells us that what Christians receive, one of the marks of a Christian is that they all receive this incredible love from God. But John also is concerned about what we're going to be. The question of, of what are we going to be? This, this is an important piece in a Christian's life. And his answer is that we are destined for glory. And we see it in, in verse 2 here. When John writes, beloved, we are God's children. Now, it, it anticipates something. We have this amazing gift that God has given us. He has made us children of God now. 
Every, we have an inheritance now, right now. Everything that is Jesus's is ours right now, but we, we, haven't, we haven't seen it. We're still waiting for it. There's going to be a day when we're actually going to receive it, when God will give it to us. And we see this anticipation in verse 2. And what we shall be has not yet appeared. We don't know exactly what that's going to look like. But we know that it's coming. And John concludes, But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. I don't have time to fill all of that out. But I, I wanted to mention it because these first three points, they drive us to the final point. In fact, the final point doesn't mean anything without these first three points. And, and John is culminating. John is making an argument here. This is who you are. You're a child of God, right? You don't have to fear any condemnation. There is no fear of judgment. You, you, are, you are secure in my fatherhood. You are protected. And then... You, you can know that you've been loved by me. I didn't even spare my own son for you. I gave up what was the most precious thing to me in order to secure you, in order to make you my children. And not only that, I'm going to bring you home. And everyone who has this hope, verse 3, purifies himself as he is pure. These things drive us to the final, the final point, what we do. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, has argued that the, the order here is instructive. It's purely a logical connection. It's a test of sorts. It, it's like, it's to the extent that I grasp what God has done and who I am in verses 20, 28 to 3 verse 2, to the extent that I grasp that, I am going to implement verse 3. Right? Be, it, it all depends on how well I understand how well these doctrines have embedded themselves into my heart. How deeply they've shaped my thinking that I will start living in a way that pleases God. John starts with doctrine. And don't forget that. We have to start with doctrine. This is who you are. You are a child of God. You will one day be changed when Jesus Christ returns. And then, only then, does John continue with and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. I want you to notice two things from this statement. First, John is giving us the, a reason. We have a hope. One day we will be like Jesus. You believe something and that's fueling your actions. But secondly, notice that John does not say you ought to. You know, if you get around to it, you should purify yourself. No, he says, the man that um, purifies, um, everyone who hopes in him, he purifies himself. This is an action. He's doing it. It's, a, it's an automatic process. It's like a 15-year-old eating food. He gets bigger. He can't pre prevent himself from growing. It just happens. And that's the way it is with us. Doesn't it make sense then that our failure to live holy lives, the reason that we don't live holy lives is not a failure in doing. It's not because we fail to do. It's because we fail to believe. That's the issue. If only we got our belief right, our actions would immediately follow. And getting it backwards, focusing on the fruit, focusing on what we do, emphasizing ethics and behavior, 
That's what accounts for our failure to live victorious Christian lives. We spend too much time focusing on what we do, getting the order wrong. And this is why the church is weak and anemic today. They do not understand the Christian life. They do not understand that they are dead to sin, Romans 6, 11. They do not understand they've been crucified to the world and, and the world to them, Galatians 6, 14. They, they don't understand that they no longer live, but Christ lives in them, Galatians 2, 20. They have not tasted and the goodness of God, Psalm 34, 8. They do not understand or know that, theirs is an, that their inheritance is an eternal unfading inheritance kept in heaven for them. 1 Peter 1.4. They've not considered that their present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glories that are going to be revealed to us. Romans 8.18. They've not counted the world's gain as loss, rubbish, dung, when compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ their Lord. Philippians 3.8. Because if the church knew these things, it wouldn't be weak and anemic. If we really knew them, we would be transformed by them. And the only way we're going to rectify this is by getting our doctrine right. So having been warned about getting the order wrong, John has something to say about living out the Christian life about holiness. The Christian will indeed purify himself as he is pure. Now, this sort of presents a bit of a problem. It's easy to see from the text that the Christian is comparing himself to someone else. And the person that he's comparing himself is to is Christ. He has an objective standard, someone to measure himself against. And while this might seem overwhelming, daunting, we need to consider what the scriptures actually say. Uh, 2 Corinthians 3.18 tells us that, And we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. And this happens going from one degree of glory. What he's saying is that you're going from one degree of Christ-likeness to another. You are growing in your holiness. You are looking more and more like Jesus. And the way it happens is by beholding the glory of the Lord. It's as we gaze at him. And just so you, so you don't think that this is the only place in the, in the Bible that says this, Hebrews 12, 1 through 3 says something very similar. We read, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. As we behold, as we look to Jesus, we go from one degree of glory to another. As we look to Jesus, we will not grow weary or faint-hearted. In other words, we, we become more like Jesus. Brothers and sisters, this is amazing. For many of us, when we look at others, when we compare ourselves to someone else, we're not changed. <laughs> what, what happens is that we're not encouraged, we're discouraged. We're not motivated, we're disheartened. But this is not the case with Jesus. The more you look, 
The longer you stare, the deeper you gaze into his life, his goodness, his mercy, his compassion, his strength, his resolve, and his love for his broken people, the greater your love grows for him. And this, in turn, will transform and empower you to purify yourself. There's one other observation that I want to make, just about the meaning of the word purify itself. Now, earlier in the letter, John used a different word that could easily be be misunderstood um, as equivalent to this word purify, and that's the word cleanse. Back in one Chapter 1, verses 7 to 9, we see that cleansing is the result of God forgiving our, our sins, forgiving us of our sins. And in that context, it's God that does the action. He cleanses us as we confess our sins. But in 1 John 3, 3, it's the Christian who performs the action. It's the Christian who purifies himself. Purification is different than cleansing. In the Old Testament, the, and this is the context for uh, the word, in the Old Testament, the priest prepared the altar and he prepared the tabernacle and the utensils, and even the priest himself was prepared by this, this anointing oil that was poured over these things. And this procedure of pouring this anointing oil over all these things prepared the object for service. With cleansing, God does the work. But with purifications, Christians perform this work, this work of preparation, preparation for service, preparation of a life that is lived for God. This work involves getting rid of sin, the sins, as we read in Hebrews 12, that so easily entangle us and weigh us down. It also removes, it also involves getting rid of just weights, not, not sins, but just weights, things that hinder us in our running after Jesus. There is an active resistance against and a purging of sins in our lives and a focused effort to avoid activities or places or things which we know would lead us into sin. That's what's involved in purifying ourselves. It also means cultivating a hatred for sin by reading, by praying, by fellowshipping with God's people, and by by. I would say primarily by being in God's word and praying through God's word. Now, since purification is active, Christians must also actively think about the things that are influencing and controlling them. We must be controlled by the Word of God. We must be controlled by God and not by the world. We must give, therefore give careful thought to what we are taking in from the world. Back in chapter 2, verse 15, John warns us, right, not to love the world. We need to spend time thinking about how the world is influencing, how the world is penetrating our lives and digging its claws into our hearts. We need to think about those things. And purifying ourselves is the way that we go about doing that. It means, just as a couple of ideas, that we, we need to think about the te- how technology is controlling our lives. I, I don't want to give a lot of details. I just, I just want to put that out there. We need to think about it. Are we controlled by technology or do we use technology to glorify God? If technology has a grip on us that is causing us to sin, that is keeping us out of his word, that is keeping us out of prayer, that's that's sin and we need to purify ourselves in some way. We need to also uh, give careful thought 
to consumerism? Are we feeding at the trough of stuff? Are we, are we passively purchasing like there's no tomorrow? The question that we have to ask ourselves is, are we preparing ourselves today to meet the Lord on the day of judgment? Just some, just some thoughts. But if you have, if you are a child of God, if you've experienced God's love for you, if you know, if your hope is that one day you will see Jesus Christ face to face, you will purify yourself even as he is pure. So what is a Christian? This morning we've seen that a Christian is a blood-bought child of God, fearless in their, the embrace of their father's love and preparing themselves to meet their savior. That's what a Christian is. Let me read it again. So what is a Christian? It's a blood-bought child of God who is fearless in the face of their father, embrace of their father's love and is preparing themselves to meet their savior. Does this describe you this morning? I want you to think about that. If not, there is only one thing to do. Whether you are a Christian or not, repent of your sin, repent of unbelief, and put your trust in Jesus' righteousness and you will be born again. Born a child of the eternal God. Bask. I want, I want you to you need at that point to bask in God's love and God's kindness towards you. You need to relish that you have nothing to fear. And then this week, go live out this new reality as you prepare to meet your Savior. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, What manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. God, my, my heart's prayer and cry is that everyone here would know you as their Father, and that their lives, the practice, the practices of their lives, that the practice of righteousness would be characteristic of them, that they would know, Father, that they would desire to live a life that pleases you because of the truths about them that your word proclaims. God, I, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it, it cuts, it wounds, but it binds up. And Father, that a bruised reed you will not break. You bend us, Father. You convict us. You, um, you rebuke, but Father, you, you heal. And there's life and there's hope, and there's joy in the truth of your word. And God, we pray these things all in Christ's name. Amen.